welcome to We Bought a Mic, a pop culture podcast remote once again. Uh, maybe this is the way it'll always be, the way we've always known, the way it always was. Um, it's it's a weak uh, uh, question mark uh, of quarantine. And uh, I just, you know, we have so many things to talk about this week. But I just want to know how you guys are. First of all, I'm Ernest. I am Hunter, and I'm scared. Uh, I'm Drew. I'm fine. I'm uh, yeah. I'm I'm hanging in there. You guys, are doing you guys okay? realizing? I'm realizing that certain parts of this quarantine thing are actually kind of nice, and some parts of quarantine, I'm like, ah, you know what? Like, we could just like chill in our houses all the time. Watch a bunch of movies. That could be fun. It could be. It fun is. All of us. It is pretty chill. Um, I will say I have braved the uh, local grocery store a couple times, and it is quite terrifying. Uh, but it. I also feel like a character in an apocalypse movie, like making a, a a run for supplies. So I'm like out there with a mask and gloves, and like my hat is like really low to cover the rest of my face. And I'm looking around at everybody around me and like anybody could have the virus. So, you know, it it's, I wouldn't say fun, but, um, you know, it, there is a level of, uh, of heightenedness to this that you, you gotta, you gotta admit is a little amusing perhaps. So, uh, again, it's, it, it, I will say it's gotten a little bit past the point of like uh, sadness the point where like you can't I, I'm now starting to have a little bit of optimism in my life and hope trying to draw the the good things out of life as we know it. I did have to wait like 20 minutes just to get inside of a Publix two days ago. So that was uh, an odd thing. But now I'm like looking back at because in like a year from now, we're going to be like, man, wasn't that crazy? Like fucking 2020 that we thought that we were just all going to spend die a whole like, year indoors. I, I will say if 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 we're gonna learn anything from this, I think that we can appreciate the little the little things more. You know, the fact that this is giving everybody a chance to just pause. Everything is just on pause. And it gives us all a moment to just like breathe a little bit. Everybody's always so busy. You know, everybody's so always lost in our phones. Yeah, yeah. Everybody uh, technology these days yeah, it's like iphone <laughs> ipad i don't know anymore you know so if yeah. anything this will this will be an opportunity to to maybe think about what's what's better um what what we appreciate the most in our lives and i think one of the things i definitely appreciate a lot more is like we talked about a couple weeks ago the new music that keeps coming and last time we talked about music it was a little bit earlier on in the quarantine and things were still a little fresh and it, it, those, those albums didn't hit as they would have in a non-quarantine world. But now that everyone's sort of like getting more settled into this, this, um, this life, uh, the two new newer albums that are out, I think are hitting really, really well. Um, first up, we have a new Thundercat album. It is what it is and that's what this whole situation is it's just what it is 
Uh, but that's not what the album's about. The album's a bunch of sweet bass licks and riffs and grooves. Um, and Thundercat is at it again with his, uh, you know, funky soul jazz uh, type of um, of music. And it's another great album. I think Drunk uh, definitely got a little bit more attention than this one's getting little bit more of a cultural punch but uh this one's just as good if not maybe better it's a little tighter it's a little more refined uh we got Flylo in there producing most of the tracks and it just it just hits the right spot you know if you're a thundercat fan and you like those fast uh intricate bass riffs um and kind of psychedelic feel to your to your jazz. Um, this is going to be a good album for you. Yeah, I uh, I really like it. I've only listened through it a couple of times. I don't know if it has the highs on it that I like that are as high as something on Drunk, but it is definitely a tighter album. Like it's only thirty seven minutes long, yeah. and it does breeze through. Um, I mean, and Thundercat is the greatest bass player on earth. Like he is, he is a fucking God and he just shreds. And I, his voice, I feel like turns off a lot of people Mm -hmm. because he does sing in that high falsetto. That's very airy and it does turn a lot of people off, but it's just some of the beats on this thing are just fucking banging black quails. All of the features that are on that song are insane. Like, we got Steve Lacey, we got Childish Gambino, we have all these other oh. people. There's Steve Arrington. Yeah, it is. It's just a groovy, groovy song. I mean, that translates through to a lot of the album. Yeah, the, the album has a great flow to it, too. Like, each song just carries you directly to the next, each groove leading to, directly into the the next one. So it doesn't it doesn't quite let up, but it's also not, like tiresome at all it's just this constant like just groove that he just carries with those like uh arpeggiated fucking fast bass licks that he has and having flying lotus on the production just elevates it too because you have the the drum uh programming too going on in, in the the lower end um his singing you know you're right about it turning people off but he is trying to keep it like psychedelic and just kind of spacey so that sound it just comes with the territory um but i do agree that it does it it, it's not accessible in the 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 best sense but if you like it it. it in general is accessible i would not even i wouldn't even pin it you like the, the voice is like the fourth least accessible thing that he does. He is a progressive bassist. Yeah. <laughs> but fact, I mean, if you compare it, it all listens to this is a testament to how fucking good he is. You know, if you compare this to his older shit, this is way more listenable. You know, the, mm-hmm. the albums that he put out uh, at the beginning of the decade, like apocalypse and the golden age of apocalypse, yeah. those albums are just like really fucking in your face intense bass riffs that you can't really like groove to or dance to in any way um drunken and it is what it is kind of 
are trying to be a little bit more accessible uh, while, you know, still being really intricate and forceful with the, with the bass playing. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the album. Uh, I don't think it reaches the level of drunk. Uh, I think it lacks the cohesion that drunk has. It's tight. It's extremely tight and it gets you and gets you out. But every single song on drunk, uh, it fits in perfectly to that puzzle. Uh, production wise in particular, I found there to be a couple like uh, weird, like jarring switches in production in between songs uh, this is still a great album. Thundercats, maybe one of my like 15 favorite artists working today. Drunk, I think, is one of my favorite albums of the last decade. And uh, this is another, you know, great fucking album by Thundercat. He, and he's also just a cool dude. Yeah. Which we do, in fact, care about. Yeah, we should shout out the uh, the music video for Dragon Ball Do-Rag, where you just watch and you're like, man, this guy knows exactly where he's at. He yep. knows exactly what he needs to do. And he's not trying to be anything less or anything more. He is chilling and yeah. and, and he's just in with the in vibing. crowd over there. That video directed by fucking Zach Fox nice. and shot in Kenny Beats's backyard. Oh, there you go. Yeah, he's he's in. Like yeah. he's, he'll be around. Um, I wanted to shout out some songs that I really, really like if people don't want to dive into the whole album. I love Louis Cole featuring Louis Cole. Oh, yeah. Uh, it sounds like a J-pop anime theme song that just like gets you almost out of your chair cheering because it gets you so hyped up. Uh, of course, Dragon Ball uh, Do-Rag. That one is like in my head constantly now and I'm just singing the melodies and refrains I from mean, that's it. the most uh, drunk song yeah on the whole album it sounds straight off that album which is the highest compliment i could give any music <laughs> mm -hmm. uh miguel's happy dance of course you guys already brought up uh black qualls um yeah. and the last two songs existential dread and it is what it is uh are also just um pretty catchy and just earworm yeah. type songs and so he does at times in the album he does address he was extremely tight with mac miller uh, oh he, wow he took that loss very very hard uh if you go on youtube a little little supplemental watching here there was a you know there was like a giant uh memoriam concert for mac miller and uh thundercat did a couple songs and during one of them uh john mayer came out who was also in that circle in la and uh it's it's a fucking stunner performance like it absolutely slaps hell yeah damn all right i didn't know that that's i'll have to check that out um, cool. So let's get into the other big album that came out recently. Uh, came out just a couple of days ago as of this recording. Yeah. And that is the first, uh, the newest Strokes album in the last seven years, The New Abnormal. Seven I can't believe years. that Come Down Machine came out. Yeah, I can't believe Come Down Machine came out seven years ago. I mean, they did release in 2016, like that little uh, four-song EP, mm -hmm. uh, Future, Present, Past. Yeah. But yeah, um, this album uh, fucking slaps. This yeah. is not, this is, I mean, the best thing that they've done since, I mean, easily since Angles. Uh, which I was love Angles. I mean, Angles gets paid. I really paid. like Angles a lot. I, I really like that album. I think that this is like on par with Angles, though. Like, it's right up there with me. It and sounds really I, different. 
like sonically yeah. it is very very different because angles sort of tried to do something way different than they had done before and this I mean, feels more kind of like the older stuff yeah well angles was julian casablanca's taking over and like power tripping and that's why they won't play those songs live anymore because they almost broke up when that album came out um and obviously you know they they've been they've been gone folks um and i think that the age of the strokes should it shouldn't inform your entire opinion of this album but it definitely influenced mine because this is a band that is about 20 years into their uh fame into their career and with that context i think this is a very good album uh they're doing new things but they're also hearkening back they're saying they're playing the same old progressions they used to play in like 2001 uh there are two different songs on this album that play a progression that you can find on is this it uh which if you want more from them then you don't really know what the strokes are the strokes are the masters of indie pop rock that's like all they ever aspired to be and they reached it with their first album and since then they've just kind of been like reaching around like we already we did it like what where do we go from here I mean, I actually, but I don't think that this is just a complete, like, I don't think that you have to know that this is a band that's 20 years deep. So for like, for example, I've been playing this album all the time around my house and my girlfriend, who I'm stuck here in quarantine with, was never really a Strokes fan. And like, she was like, listen to the album. And uh, I think it was during, um, it was during uh, Bad Decisions. I think she listened and she was like, am I a fan of The Strokes? I think that yeah. I love The Strokes now. Like that, I think that this is still an album that if you never got into them, it is very accessible because this That's isn't- It's pop rock. Pure, it's, it, but it's less, I mean, it still has the garage rock roots that The Strokes are known for, but it is more poppy. It has like some almost like, 80s underground vibes to it like something like the cure would write yes this very very new wave vibes well, on this yeah album. easily the biggest influence for this entire album is new order new order is fucking all yeah. over this shit uh and tinges which, tinges of like blondie and joy division a little mm-hmm. bit well yeah new order is joy division it's the same guys except for the uh dead one um but yeah no this new order is fucking everywhere on this album every there will be a, uh, I guess, like a hit pattern on a keyboard that is identical to Bizarre Love Triangle. And then the next song, there will be this uh, flangy chorus effect that they used, uh, what, I guess, like 37 years ago. And it's it's circled back around. It sounds extremely fresh right now. Um, to me, the biggest revelation on the whole album was that Julian's vocals have actually never been better. Um, mm-hmm. He, like 20 years in, he was like, you know what, I think I want to learn how to sing now. Um, I think everyone, everyone on the band in the band is like trying on this one there. You can tell that they're giving it their all, which you couldn't say that for come down machine, come down machine felt like they were pretty much ready to call quits. They were very publicly not giving their all. They were, that was an album made out of spite and obligation. Yeah. To fulfill a record contract. And they, they pretty much took the entire 2010s off. Like they made angles at the beginning of the decade. Then they put out this like half-hearted album in 2013 and then silence, no tours, very little uh, sh- shows being played. And now going into the twenties, 
they're back. And I'm honestly kind of surprised because it seemed like Julian was trying to go off on his own and it seemed like they hadn't found a way to update their sound uh, for this new era. You know, they're not going psychedelic or anything like that or selling out to being like a commercial pop band or anything like that. Um, but this album gives me hope that somehow, some way, we're going to have the strokes in our lives for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that you were talking about how they like didn't try and I saw them in 2015 or 2014, 2015. Yeah. And I mean, it was a great show because the Strokes don't put on a bad show, but you could tell like they're one of those bands that they're so talented and they almost hate that they are that talented because they would just rather be anywhere except for up there, like playing music for people. But now, I mean, after putting out this new record, I cannot wait to see them live again because you're right, Drew, that who, Julian never has sounded better. I mean, I really love his vocals on First Impressions of Earth. Like, I've, it's not... He is going for it, but in a very different kind of way. He's going for it, but he doesn't really know how to sing. But I think that he has just one of the most unique voices in mm-hmm. music. For sure. And he turned what was like a unique voice like I'm using air quotes, like to say like that it might be kind of bad just in calling it unique and turn it into like a good unique voice. Yeah. Uh, I love the keyboard line in Brooklyn bridge to chorus. And even How though about that it, riff, yeah. That opening riff. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. what I'm saying. The keyboard, the, no, oh. the, the guitar riff on top of it. I've been talking yeah, about yeah, it yeah. Nonstop because the uh, effects on that it's like a fuzz combined with the chorus that's like my platonic ideal of what i want a riff to sound like they play the riff one fucking time and then never again in the song big mistake boys yeah <laughs> say it. what are you doing uh either way though i i think uh the best two songs on the album are probably the first song and the last song in my opinion the mm. adults are talking and then ode to the mets which starts slow and then you the little moment where julian is like fab the drums the drums please fab and then the drums like kick in and it just keeps going and going and building and building um really really just uh, it's i would say it's probably my fourth favorite album of the strokes but that's because i love the strokes it's not because i don't like this album uh i i'm very happy to hear fresh strokes and have it not mm-hmm. sound like an afterthought because yeah it has been for a long time especially for julian um you know he had a, a voids album come out two years ago i'm not i've never been a huge fan of the voids i will say though this album made me uh go back and re-listen to his solo album phrases for the young from 2009 that album is really good uh i would recommend that to everyone who hasn't done a whole listen through of that Uh, Because it's like 11 years old and a lot of like identical production things to what they just did are already happening way back then. So Rick Rubin produced this new record. Yeah. So do we think that maybe that has something to do with like the cohesion of the sound? Because I don't think they had worked with him before. No, they hadn't. Um, And he, I mean, very famously, he's like a meditative, almost like a hands-off type of producer where he you know, he wants to guide you in the right way, but he doesn't want to tell you what to do. And I think that that sort of like calming presence might be very useful to someone like Julian who sometimes get lost in his own butthole. Well, especially also because 
you know, it's pretty obvious that there was a lot of infighting in the band that yeah. to that seemed like it was going to lead to the end of the band, right? So it, you know, at the at at the beginning of of us talking about this, you mentioned how their age is a huge part of this, and it just feels like the maturity is on display here. You know that they're not being fucking petty uh, brats you know trying to like start some nonsense punk rock beef with each other that yeah. the important thing is to make fucking good music and forget about all the bullshit yeah i'm i'm proud of my boys um yeah i did want to i did want to say to your point about the lyrics uh how he julian has like these little moments where he uh i don't even know how to describe it like there's a moment on Brooklyn Bridge chorus where he says and the 80s bands oh where did they go can we switch into the chorus right now yeah and like to me that's almost like t- like not trying to write a real lyric but when Julian does it there is like a like a layer of Sm- like smirkness to well, it's, it. it's it's the added element of i have done this a hundred times you know right. i could so i don't <laughs> yeah. have to and yeah. also the the uh, the lover boy in me the fanboy in me almost wanted to call those both of those two little incidents uh car seat headrest influence it, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. is it the chorus yet no it's i mean the of course verse. they fucking know about car seat headrest you oh. know like very I honestly, I, I'd be willing to bet that like it is kind of like uh, them and I mean, car seat headrest would not exist without the strokes. So maybe the strokes got a little bit of influence from car seat headrest. Now that it's kind of yeah, it's uh, like it's like what I said about each album. Yeah, um, I was also gonna say. I mean, we haven't even talked about it. this. Is like it's the perfect level of sad for me. This mm-hmm. album because like whenever like even that line like is it the chorus yet? Like, it's kind of a, like, very, like, it can come across as either cynical or kind of, like, depressed, which is something, I mean, Julian has not been known for being, like, uh, always optimistic dude about the state of the world that we're in right now. But, I mean, the last three songs on the album are Why Are Sundays So Depressing, Not the Same Anymore, and Ode to the Mets. And it very much, it reminds me of, an 80s album structure where we have all of the singles are kind of in the first half of the album you have more of the bangers and then you have more of this ballad kind of style in the back half yeah and and to that point i also think that that's kind of why this is kind of the perfect album to listen to during this pandemic because it's fucking great music that you can bop to and you can enjoy on a on a just surface level sonically but then the mood of it of of the the message and and like the lyrics they still kind of hit that little bit of 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 itch that we're all kind of feeling right now of of anxiety and uncertainty um not that the album is is like about anxiety and uncertainty, but it just, it has that little tinge of like melancholiness that fits with the vibe of the world right now. Yeah. I've been, I've been enjoying listening to it a lot. Um, It just, it makes me happy to see that they're not 
just going out with a whimper, you know, like they're like, no, we are, we are not going to go out with fucking that. uh, It wasn't even that horrible of an album, but it it just, it was offensive because you knew that they just didn't give enough of a fuck. Exactly. Exactly. And, and like I I said earlier, it just seemed like that, like it was the, the end of the strokes, you know, I was ready to just never hear from them again and just be satisfied with some solo Julian albums or whatever. You are right. Uh, whenever you compared them to MG to the MGMT album, because MGMT, I kind of felt the same way about. After they released their self-titled album, it's like, yeah, well, I guess we can always look back on those first <laughs> couple records, and then they yeah. hit you with something that's one of the best albums I've listened to this year. Uh, last quick thing here, I wanted to shout out is again to that point of Julian just being a little snarky with his lyrics. Um, in the Daft Punk album, his song, Instant Crush, uh, when he says, take it, I don't want to sing anymore. Like, yeah, to yeah. me, that's iconic Julian Casablancas. Mm. And I love that he is kind of self-aware with that. Uh, and it seems like he he just, he, he no. knows that people know this about him. I and was, he just plays with it. Yeah, he's a, he's a moody boy. He's, you know, he's a silver spoon kid from fucking New York. And yeah. uh, that's what he will always be. And that's fine. He's very good at it. Um, I was just thinking about, cause I've been just like going back straight into everything uh, Julian, Julian's ever done. And I am as big of a, an early strokes fan as you could find. They, you know, like they're one of like the three or four bands that like changed my entire like musical life. Uh, Instant Crush is the best song he's ever been on. Yeah, it's uh, an incredible song. It's one of the best songs I've ever heard in my life. And his vocal, <laughs> his vocal performance is yeah. truly fantastic. Yeah, like I mean, the, the notes he hits. It's it's it, there's a lot of pitch shifting in there by Daft Punk. I don't know what led them to think that that was a good idea, but that was somehow the best idea I've ever heard. His voice pitched up sounds incredible, and he's replicated that since then with some of his solo stuff um but yeah that that is one of the best songs of uh, all time for my money so the new abnormal we're gonna be listening to it a lot it's a huge contender for top 10 of the year of 2020 um so you'll probably be hearing uh from it at the the end of the year pod but check it out if you haven't already, it's a tight 45 minutes, only nine songs. So just really, really easy to jump in and get a lot out of it. Um, all right. So let's get to some stuff that we've been watching. Um, I, last week, uh, announced that I am embarking on a little bit of a James Cameron filmography journey yeah, and all the quarantine. all the fans said, Ernie, don't do it. No, no. It ends in blue people fucking each other with their tails. Yeah. And Little did said, they know I want that. I, Ernest, I you should you should do a James Cameron producing watch through because that is a much more dangerous trek to go down. Yeah. All of the Terminator sequels. Yeah. Oh <laughs> fuck. So uh, this week, I the only thing I watched from his filmography is True Lies, which is on HBO right now. And I really, re- really recommend people check it out if they have HBO because it's actually not very accessible 
um, on any other streaming service or anything else. Um, so it's one of those movies that's kind of hard to find unless you have the DVD or Blu-ray. Same with The Abyss, uh, which is also on HBO. Uh, True Lies is, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger in a action role that, as he does best, but Jim Cameron just really, really knows how to use uh, Schwarzenegger to the best of his abilities, like capturing the machismo of this action star, but also like the weird humor that Schwarzenegger can pull off really well. But it's Jamie Lee Curtis that steals this movie. And guys, I don't know if you've seen True Lies recently or ever, but there is a scene in True Lies where Jamie Lee Curtis does an extended striptease sequence. And it is one of the greatest moments in cinema Are you being ever. Bored? Yeah, I'm 100% serious. And if you've seen True Lies, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, Ernie getting it, horny on the pot. Yeah, yeah, on main. <laughs> horny on main for sure. So. Jamie Lee Curtis. The listeners asked. The listeners asked for more horny earnest on podcasts. Yeah, I've been begging it. you for months to get hornier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, I honestly, I did not expect this movie to go where it goes because it starts out as like a very like James Bond esque action thriller thing, but it gets erotic real quick. But it's also fucking hilarious. There are some really, really effective comedic moments in this movie from Schwarzenegger and from Jamie Lee Curtis because her story, it's really her movie, essentially. Uh, it's her like sexual awakening journey. Um, and James Cameron just, he really knows his female uh, protagonists really well. Like he's just really good at that. But I gotta say, uh, even though Jamie Lee Curtis wins the movie, my guy, Bill Paxton, is fucking oh, hilarious in this. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm watching all these Jim Cameron movies, and Bill Paxton is in, like, pretty much all of them. And the whole time, I'm just like, motherfucker, this guy was so talented, so there sad that he's gone. He used to be a great trivia answer for a long stretch in, like, the early 2000s because he actually was uh, the highest-grossing movie star of all time for a, sh for a period, for a number of years, because he was in all these fucking Cameron movies. Exactly, mm -hmm. yeah. And he he got lucky to be cast in Aliens because he wasn't really an actor, he was like a set designer or something. And by chance, you know, he was trying to like break in as an actor. And by chance, he just uh, ended up, I, I got to do a little bit more research on how it happened. I think, I think it had something to do with the Terminator um, or maybe um, some other, I think James Cameron did some set design work before he made uh, the Terminator. And I think maybe it was like Escape from New York or something like that, where yeah. they met. Um, hey, and I actually, I, I have a Bill Paxton trivia thing for you guys right now. We are recording on April 13th. Uh, of course, he was also in the movie Apollo 13. This is the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 13 mission. Whoa. So there's another little bit of uh, Bill Paxton trivia for you today on the pod. Hell like yes. We have, yeah, very topical stuff today on the pod. 
Oh, speaking speaking <laughs> of Apollo to do in three days. Speaking of Apollo thirteen, I I need to talk more about the Abyss, starring Apollo thirteen alum Ed Harris, because I mentioned the Abyss last week, and I mentioned how it's like, uh, you know, this very unsung, underrated Jim Cameron movie, um, but. The more I think about it, the more I, I feel like this movie really needs more attention. It's like such a rare movie, this big, bold, expensive movie. And I watched a, a making of documentary about it. And guys, like this might be the most intense, arduous production of any movie ever like shooting this thing underwater. They shot in like the biggest freshwater tanks ever constructed. And these actors went through hell to shoot the abyss. Like Water's a fucking nightmare, dude. Yeah, everything is going against you. They couldn't communicate with each other. They had to use like hand signals. And Ed Harris even tells a story about how he broke down in his car after shooting one day, crying. Because wow. he almost fucking died. He almost drowned making this movie. And he was being hard on himself because he didn't get the shot. Because he almost <laughs> fucking drowned. My God. Yeah, I knew. I meant to bring that up last last week when we brought The Abyss. Because that's the only thing that I knew about. It was the, that Ed Harris almost died while making The Abyss. Yeah. That's the only thing that I know about that movie. Because, I mean, nowadays everything would be shot in front of a green screen and there would be all of this CGI uh, effects to make the movie seem like it was actually being shot in these really intense conditions. But in the nineties, man, like uh, this shit was for real. Like they were shooting this shit underwater. They were flooding sets even back then, they could have used green screen and technology and stuff, but James Cameron is a maniac, and he's just yeah. like, no, we will, we will do it underwater. Yeah. This is the shot that I will get. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, you know, a lot of these actors uh, talk shit, you know, and it's, again, another crazy thing about these making of documentaries is that they're also part of that time because of how honest people are being in the documentaries about <laughs> yeah. the shit that they went through nowadays they wouldn't be able to talk about any of that shit it would just be like oh yeah we had a great time we love jim he's he's a darling i love my job i love being an actor in these movies so fun so great but no man these actors are like talking about the hell that they went through and you can watch this shit on youtube it's right there. And it, it's just a testament to the, that time of all these uh, really honest, raw accounts of what it was like to, to make these movies. Um, so again, if you haven't seen True Lies, if you haven't seen uh, H or um, The Abyss, they're both on HBO right now. Highly, highly recommend them. Uh, they might be Jim Cameron's most underrated movies because obviously Aliens and T2 get all the the attention as like his masterpieces which they are i i'm not gonna uh dispute that one because they're fucking perfect masterpieces but true lies and and the abyss are like the ones that should get more attention because he doesn't make movies like that anymore he's all the way into avatar world right now 
So I don't know if we're ever going to get an erotic action spy thriller like True Lies ever again from Jim Cameron. We probably won't unless Avatar 4 turns out to be an erotic action spy thriller with blue people. Isn't that what the first one is? Yeah, kind of, kind of. Yeah. Last thing before uh, we move on. You guys uh, familiar with Miss, Mr. Uh, Michael Bean? Michael Mr. Bean? Bean? Michael Bean? <laughs> so, <laughs> Mr. Bean. Michael Bean is another Jim Cameron uh, collaborator, uh, much like Mr. Bill Paxton and, um, uh, you know, Sigourney and whatnot. B-I-E-H-N. Yeah. So Michael Bean, I, I'm, I'm very curious about this guy because he has the kind of energy that hero of the pod, Scoop McNary, has. He has heavy energy because he's like right on that level of like so talented and charismatic that he should be a star. This but guy's way not, more attractive than Yeah, Scoot no, he, he's definitely way better looking than Scoot. He's, I mean, he plays Kyle Reese in the first Terminator movie. So he yeah, was being yeah. set up as like the action guy, but he never made it. He never made it. And he's, he's conventionally attractive. He's a really good actor. And the thing that made me arrive at this take is in the abyss, he has a heavy Scoot energy mustache where i just kept i just kept thinking man if they made the abyss today it would be fucking scoop mcnary in that role (laughs) he honestly he honestly kind of reminds me of if scoop mcnary and lee pace had a baby then they would make this guy don't give me that's part of pace has lee pace has like an attractive charisma (laughs) that this guy looks like he has like the oeuvre of yeah and he has range man like seeing him in uh the abyss and an aliens like two completely different performances and and the abyss he has a little bit of like a kind of psychotic tinge to his performance so it just gave me like heavy scoop vibes and and he has a he he has a face that to me uh says substance abuse problems (laughs) like Um, many actors in that he has michael madsen face yeah Oh man, Michael Bean, where are you at, man? What happened? We miss you, bud. Come back, do Michael a movie Bean, with Scoot. Come on, come on the podcast. Yeah, come on the pod, man. Talk about your experience making uh, the abyss. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's my that's my Cameron corner for this week. Again, watch these movies on HBO if you haven't. They won't stay on there forever. And I'll report back uh, to see if I if I dive into Titanic and Avatar, and Terminator, uh, and the weird uh, deep-sea exploration documentaries that he made, too, because that's apparently his real passion, not filmmaking. The man's a fucking genius, but he's insane. He's a crazy person. Guy hates uh, filmmaking. (laughs) (laughs) All right, what else we got on the the catch-up today? Uh, so I have been filling my time for the last uh, couple weeks with a movie and a book. Um, I guess I will start with the movie, get the Thank high God. bar stuff out of the way. Um, this week I paid uh, $19.99 to rent 
the new what would have been a hit blockbuster film trolls world tour mm. um cool. you guys familiar with the the trolls extended universe i know uh, that every time they the show movie, the, the trailer netflix series there's a netflix series shit yeah man. there is there's an animated netflix series Every time I saw the trailer for Trolls World Tour back when theaters were still a thing, I felt like I was on like every drug ever, like cocaine, Molly, weed, alcohol, ketamine, like every frame in that trailer was just like, get you fucked up on some fucking pills and fucking substances, motherfucker. And it's a uh, kid's it's, movie. It's more of... It's more, yeah, it's more like mixing ketamine and acid together um, is what the trailer was. Uh, so the movie itself has certain elements that are like that. First of all, before I even get to the movie, this is going to be a huge test, this movie, how much money it makes on VOD, because this movie had a $90 million budget. This is not something to be fucked around. And the cast is like insane cast. Yeah, There's I mean, Anna that's Kendrick, the whole Justin budget. Timberlake. Rachel Bloom, James Corden, Ron Funches, Kelly Clarkson, Anderson Pack, our guy, Sam Rockwell, George Clinton, Mary George J. Clinton. Blige, <laughs> Keenan Thompson, Jay Balvin, uh, Ozzy Osbourne. I could just keep going with all the What in names. the hell? <laughs> so, um, this movie, I, I there's not a point in me wasting my time trying to describe the plot to this movie because I'm not sure that I could do an accurate job. Um, cool. It's uh, it's fine. <laughs> Don't tell my girlfriend that I. Yeah, does guy have a gun up to your head right now? <laughs> He's a big. I am a home alone right now, so okay. I can't say. You seem nervous. Um. Oh God! Oh no! Um, I think the first trolls movie is like a pretty solid kids movie and i'd say that this is only marginally worse so like as far as like family oh, wow. movies go, like it's a kids movie like i don't like this isn't uh arctic dogs like this isn't like an abomination the animation in it looks great like there's some decent good messages i will say there's a uh a whole one of the themes of this movie uh, kind of is like a vague attempt at uh, white appropriation of things. But I did think that it was funny that Trolls World Tour actually had more to say about race relations than Green Book. So there is that. Um, that Trolls World Tour legitimately did a better job of handling that than Green Book did. Academy Award winner. Um, it's... Uh, it, it's fine. Uh, the music is not quite as good as the first one. There is one song that has Anderson Pock, Mary J. Blige, and um, uh, George Clinton in it that it does fucking slap. I will say that this song slaps. And that's the, the part where it really gets into like, because the whole thing is about how pop music just appropriates other people's music. It appropriates funk and appropriates country appropriates all these things and puts them in this box behind a catchy tune so that it can be mass appealed and danced to by everyone so white culture um <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to read too far into it in between the lines to see what that's trying to say uh a lot of the movie is kind of uh colorful nonsense there's uh they try to get like fucking like uh hashtag random crazy at certain parts which uh 
my brain turned to mush during those moments. Yeah, gotta keep uh, kids' but, attention span. Yeah, I mean, it's no random than, like, fucking Adventures of Gumball or whatever the hell else children are watching, so... Oh my god, I, is Sam Rockwell in this movie? Yeah, no, that's why I said Sam Rockwell is a country troll, um, and he... Sam Rockwell is, he racist? is it up. Yes. Uh, no, he's actually... He is... Uh, <laughs> Spoilers for Trolls World Tour. He is actually a uh, a yodeler who's disguised mm. as a country troll. Mm. Is and there a MAGA hat Rockwell, in this movie? You hear Sam Rockwell yodel at one point. You, you um, couldn't pay me to watch this fucking movie. <laughs> hey, one day... You know, you could have donated 1999 to, like, a food bank or, you I'm know, doing- some sort of medical group that's like out there fighting the virus or something look the movie industry is dying right now we need content for this podcast how long of a segment can i do on the orlando food uh, bank hunter probably longer down, than trolls world tour but hunter um, turned down a job as an er surgeon so he could watch this movie <laughs> i did i did hey real um, quick speaking of the um the movie theater industry dying. I was able to support our local uh, art house theater, the Enzian, by renting St. Francis um, via a company called Oscilloscope, I believe. And they're basically partnering with a whole bunch of art house theaters around the country to provide yeah. screener links to people to watch at home and a cut of the the money the 10 bucks or 12 bucks or whatever you pay for the screener goes to the specific art house theater that you choose um so really cool and great movie i i hope that more people can watch it it's not uh really worth reviewing right now because it's not as accessible you kind of have to jump through these hoops to get it but if you're able to and you're able to support a local theater that is shut down right now from the pandemic lovely lovely yeah. movie Saint After Trolls World Tour is over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I know you paid $12 and went to a local theater, but I think it's a much better use of your money for you to spend $20 and get the full 94 minutes of Trolls World Tour. Oh, boy. All right. Um, so there's I, that. Um, so okay. tell us about uh, Mr. Bob Iger. So the other thing that I've... Uh, been doing is i've been diving hard into bob Iger's memoir slash autobiography slash kind of vaguely a book about success and everything um it's his new book called right of a lifetime he like he keeps saying he doesn't want to write an autobiography throughout the book he's just like i want to give you life lessons on business but then it's not really anything about business it's mostly just a story about his life yeah it's like accounts of like cool things that have happened in his career but bob Iger is i i think that it's a very strong argument that he is the greatest producer of all time over like the man walt disney himself when you think about all that he has done, not even just with Disney, because before he worked with Disney, he worked his way up through ABC. Um, he was there during when ABC was acquired by Disney and ESPN. But at that time, ABC was like, they hosted like kind of the wide world of sports of everything. Like they were the ones who, he tells a story about how during like the, 
pretty much like during Cold War times, his boss was like, we need more content. Go to North Korea to film the ping pong tournament. And like the U.S. government was like, no, we won't give money to North Korea. And he had to jump through all these hoops to like put this shit on TV because he was somebody who was like, no, my boss at the time rule was a guy who's just like, I don't take no for an answer. He's like, all right, I'll do it. And that's kind of how he's gotten through his whole life is uh, kind of by doing stuff like that. I mean, he, one of his first big things that he's well known for is he uh, helped Disney to acquire Pixar from Steve Jobs. Before um, the CEO, before Bob Iger, um, uh, Michael, um, I'm blanking on his name right now. Let me pull it up uh, real quick. He doesn't have any actual producer credits on IMDb. So this is all like way, you know, behind, behind the scenes work that he's doing. He's not yeah. credited um, with any actual like film productions or anything like that. No, yeah, because I mean, his whole life has been more about doing like the big picture stuff. So the CEO before uh, Bob Iger was Michael Eisner. Um, and Eisner was a really good CEO from a business perspective, but he was very cutthroat and therefore a lot of people didn't want to work with him. Uh, Michael Eisner and Steve Jobs had a really bad relationship and Disney was very close to not owning Pixar. They signed a five film deal with them whenever they first started. They began with uh, Toy Story and ended with Cars. And he tells all these stories about how whenever he was um, like working at Disney at the time, they're like, no, we don't even need to buy Pixar. They're working on this film about like a rat that can cook. Like, no, we're not going to bother spending money on Pixar. Knowing that movie would be Ratatouille, like one of the best Pixar films. He tells, and they hear a story about like a dystopian robot that's trying to save the earth and all these kind of crazy things that Pixar was coming up with. Is uh, is Iger gonna have to put out an addendum to his book right now because he's taking back control of the company in the middle of a pandemic? No, well, there's definitely like kind of seedlings that he is ready to go. I mean, he thought he almost left, like he was almost never involved after Disney acquired them because, like I said before, he was in charge of ABC. One of my favorite chapters because. My favorite show of all time is Twin Peaks. And he was the person, at that time, he was the chief content creator for ABC. And he fought to get Twin Peaks on the air because they showed it to all of the other producers and old people at ABC. And they were like, no, what is this? This is nonsense. We can't put this on the air. And he was like, no. So he kept finding like a younger demographic to show it off to to get it on. Unfortunately, he's also the reason why Twin Peaks got taken off of the air. Because David Lynch, he tried to get David Lynch, was like, hey, so you have to say, like, who killed Laura Palmer? And David Lynch was like, no, no, we don't have to resolve anything. My movie, my stories aren't about. You don't plot. tell David Lynch what to do. <laughs> well, but this is just like, look, as a fan and as a producer, you got to give the people what they want. There's a there's a clip. There's a clip that was going around on Twitter <laughs> of Lynch shooting Twin Peaks The Return and like a script supervisor telling him like, hey man, we're like, we need to cut this scene down. We're about to reach the end of our day. And he's like, you don't tell me how long a scene needs to be. A scene is not too long. What, why does everybody have to tell me that a scene is too long? Who cares how long a scene is? <laughs> 
But another, an interesting factoid about that, because he was working at ABC, he approved that. One of the first people to reach out with him to like thank him for giving a, a genius creator like David Lynch a chance to be in primetime was George Lucas. And he like made a deal with him to make, they had like an Indi- a Chronicles of Indiana Jones show, which didn't run for super long because George Lucas's idea was like, It'll be about Indiana Jones, but it'll actually be about a history lesson. Young Indiana Jones will go meet uh, oh, historical boy. figures, and then it'll be a lesson for kids. Oh, boy. And uh, guess what? Kids didn't like that. But because he even gave them a chance, opened up the door for 20 years later for them to acquire Lucasfilms and Star Wars. Which, I and, mean, which I mean, he did like himself, that. basically. Yeah, there's things like that all over the place, like where he's just like, okay... I see we need to figure out the next thing. We're starting to get stale with these ideas. We have Pixar, but that is going to lean younger. What's something for teenagers or young adults or people who are young at heart? Let's get Marvel movies. Okay, we got Marvel. That's a big success. Also, Kevin Feige is all throughout this book. I don't know why Kevin Feige is the next CEO of Disney. Kevin Feige is a fucking genius. Like, he is one, he would not only... Was he, of course, the godfather of Marvel and everything? He's very influential in the Star Wars acquisition. And he was really important in them getting Fox as well. Because yeah. Kevin Feige has all of these connections. Same with Iger, too. Mm-hmm. But, like, both of them are grinders. And they're all about, like, working connections to acquire people uh, who are just genius creators. and try or Genius creators are at least people with vision. People with vision yeah. and people who don't give up on ideas. The thing the thing I was getting at earlier, though, is that this whole book was supposed to be the victory lap for Iger, right? He leads this historic run, the most successful production company in the history of cinema, just rolling in the cash, absolutely destroying the competition, and boom, he's out on top. He is ready to to go into retirement, Disney has conquered the cinematic landscape. Then, boom, fucking coronavirus pandemic hits. And a lot of people, myself included, were speculating that the timing of his retirement was kind of like sneakily tied to the pandemic because he knew that it was going to impact the, uh, the company. And that this new guy that he was putting in would be like the wartime CEO to get Disney through the crisis that we're in right now. And that Iger didn't want to deal with it. He was like, look, I did my shit. I I got us to where we needed to be. And now let's bring in this other guy to go to war and make sure that we get through this fucking shit. But now, apparently, he's taking back control of the company from this other guy. So the story of Iger continues. Well, so his contract doesn't actually run out until his contract ends in 2021. And he's said before, before he said uh, anything about retiring, he said that he was not going to renew his contract. And then he announced that he was going to retire pretty much like kind of having a succession plan in line. And I'm guessing that with everything that's going on right now, he was like, I can't, throw this new person to the fire like this like i can't throw him to the dogs which which what i i thought that was the plan all along but it looks like it's just not 
it looks like it's kind of the opposite of that that he's taking back control through these tough times and then he's going to hand it off because actually one of the other like interesting it's a late chapter in the book whenever he starts talking about the fox acquisition but uh he was originally Iger is like a staunch like Iger like hates Donald Trump and has said all this stuff and he was actually originally planning on running for president in 2020 yeah, for that real would've, that would have yeah. uh, that would have sucked <laughs> um I take him over Yo. Bloomberg. If we got to take a billionaire <laughs> president, at least he doesn't rape women, so that's a plus. Um, Yo, let's get let's go Biden <laughs> Iger twenty twenty baby. Let's so go. no, but the thing is that he was he, he was talking about he gives this whole story about how he was like mulling it around. He didn't know if he actually wanted to be president. If he wanted to try out doing like going for governor, trying to do something else to like wet his feet. But he's always been fascinated in working in politics, and then. Rupert Murdoch reached out to him and he was yeah. just like, okay, this is strange. I don't really want to like go on Fox news or anything. And Rupert came over to his house and he's just like, first thing first, he was like, are you running for president? And he's just like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Maybe. And he was just like, okay, well, uh, so, I mean, you got a great company over there. Like I, if I was ever going to sell Fox, uh, you'd be the person I'd call. And he's just like, wait, so are you trying to sell Fox right now? Like, is that on the market? Whoa. Like he had no plans on doing that. A couple other interesting points. Uh, Disney almost bought Twitter and Spotify. Oh my God. Like they literally like had them like, and then Iger just kind of got cold feet specifically with Twitter. Cause he was like, we don't want to become a political platform. Yeah. Like we don't want where we have to worry about maintaining all that kind of ideology and stuff like that, that we just didn't want to have to deal with that. But yeah, no, I, I will say it's actually, it's a, as far as autobiographies go, it's a great read because it's all fascinating. Iger has led a fascinating life from his time working in sports, working with ABC all the way through his Disney run. It's it's really an incredible story. I just I'm just so curious to see what the next chapter is because it just seemed like it was such a neat end. Like just boom, close the book, the guy's I still done. Think- I still think he'll leave in a year. I still think he's not going to renew his contract. All right. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, I think we can wrap it up there. Um, So thank you all for listening. Thank you to Brian for your donation, your monthly donation. We did get your email and we will try to read it um, on the next episode of the podcast. So if you want to donate and you're able to during this crisis, you can do so at anchor.fm slash we bought a mic. You can also send us voicemails um, and you can, you know, rate, review, email us, follow us on social media, all those good things. Please stay safe, socially distant, clean, healthy, all that good shit. And we will be uh, back with another great episode uh, next week, which will, um, you know, it'll be more more good stuff. Check out our review of Magnolia if you haven't already. And yeah, any last thoughts, guys? No? Um, listen to the Strokes album. Read Bob Iger's book. Uh, buy Trolls World Tour. Keep it on a renewal plan. So oh, as soon as no. the 48 hours up, it'll just keep charging you $20. Um yeah and uh go watch magnolia because it's actually kind of weirdly timely yeah for the coronavirus i will uh yeah we'll close things out on a fun little story that's related to this episode if we bought a mic so 
uh, I matched up with this girl on, uh, I think it was Bumble. And we talked, we definitely hit it off. She was cool. Would not stop leaving me alone. Like very incessantly. Eventually got to a point where she said, hey, uh, the next move for us is uh, we're going to Zoom and we're going, I'm, we're going to watch the Trolls movies together. No! And so, Hell yeah! What, what I did is I ghosted her. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Woof. That's a keeper right there, Drew. <laughs>